I'm my size. Oh, sweet Jesus. Those kids are adorable, aren't they? If you have Bibles with you, please open up to the Gospel of John, chapter 12. We're working our way through John's Gospel. And this morning, we will finish up chapter 12. And it's really a, a turning point in the Gospel. Really, uh, chapters 1 through 12 is Jesus' public ministry. Beginning at chapter 13, it's a much more private time. It's, it's almost exclusive time with his disciples. And then we have the, uh, the account of uh, the crucifixion. So uh, this morning, I want to finish up chapter 12. We're going to look at verses 31 through 50. So it's a larger portion of Scripture. And so rather than what I normally do in a sermon, I'll read through the whole text in the beginning to give you context, honestly, to let you have a feeling of the whole. It's just too long, I think, to do that today. So uh, we'll just work through it a bite at a time. And, uh, and really what I want to talk about this morning is I have two things I really want to address out of this text. And I want to talk about smudges and dirty lenses. That's what I want to talk about. So, so let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word, for the truth, the power that's in your word. Lord, would you use even me today to share your word to your people in a form that's, that's life-giving to them. Lord, let, let everyone who's here today walk away with at least one thing, one nugget that's profitable, that's valuable, that they can actually use tomorrow morning. Let it be so, God. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so verses 31 to 33 say, Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I'm lifted up from the earth, will draw all men to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. There's a transition happening here. Jesus is, is, has been communicating through most of this chapter that now his time has come. There are other portions in John's Gospel where he communicates, now is not my time, things have changed. Now is the time. Now is the time for him to do the very thing that he came to do. And, um, and so, I talk about smudges and lenses. Smudges and dirty lenses. Say that ten times fast. Smudges and dirty lenses. Um, I believe most believers, unfortunately, I think that we read scripture through a dirty lens. We have presuppositions that cloud our understanding. And I think that the largest smudge on our lenses is our misunderstanding of the Father. We, all too many of us are comfortable or been conditioned or even trained to see the Father as the angry judge, and we have a very difficult time viewing him as a loving Father. If you don't believe me, pay attention to where your mind goes the next time bad things happen to you. <laughs> you go through a, a difficult circumstance or situation or you have a rough week and you're thinking, God hates me or I'm being punished or God's judging me. This almost seems to be the default place where all too many of us go. Not everybody, but, but most of the Christians I've met on my journey. Verse 31, I think, is a pretty good example of this. Jesus says, now is the time for judgment on this world. And I think we read those words, and our reflex is to apply the time for judgment to us, to, to ourselves. But that's not the case here. That's the smudge on our lens. Just read past the semicolon. Now is the time for judgment on this world, semicolon. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. The judgment isn't against us. 
The judgment Jesus speaks of is for us. It's for our benefit. Jesus, Jesus hasn't come. He has not come to judge the world. That might be shocking news for some people. Jesus has not come to judge the world. How can I say that so boldly? Well, if we just jump down to verse 47, in the same context of, of Scripture that we're looking at this morning, Jesus says this, If anyone hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. What? What? Is that in the Bible? Wait a minute. Let's have a rewind. Let's read that again. This has to be a mistake. This has to be a misprint. Something wrong in my Bible? Is this in my Bible and not in your Bible? It's my accent. It's my accent. <laughs> Nadine wanted me to do the sermon this morning in a British accent. And that maybe, and then maybe for the next few Sundays I would do a different accent each week. I'd have to practice to be ready for that. <laughs> oh, I can do my New York accent. Yo, what's that? <laughs> I didn't say it's just how it always is, yeah. <laughs> okay, let me revert that first part of verse 47 again. If anyone hears my words but does not keep them, I do not judge that person. Man, that's worthy of a tattoo somewhere on your body. <laughs> We need to be reminded. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 13 where it says, Love keeps no account of wrongs. These words are in the book. I tell you what, the gospel is good news. It is good news. If anyone hears these words, hears my words, but does not keep them, I do not judge them. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save it. Crystal clear, isn't it? Smudge removed. Maybe some of it. Let's go back to verses 31 to 33. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. What kind of death was Jesus going to die? He was going to be lifted up on a brutal Roman cross. Jesus' death on the cross would be the moment of divine restoration. Where reconciliation between God and the objects of his divine affection, us, would be accomplished. You see, this is what was wrong. Sin had become a cancer in the body of humanity. Sin had become a cancer, as it were, in people. And the cure for that cancer was the wrath of God. The wrath of God, not against us, the wrath of God, not against any one of you sitting here. You know what? If the wrath of God came against any one of us, we could not exist, right? We'd be less than an ink spot on the ground. None of us could survive the wrath of God. I could barely survive the wrath of Nadine. How could I possibly survive the wrath of God? <laughs> it's a true story. So sin had become a cancer on humanity, and the cure for that cancer was the wrath of God, not against us, but against the cancerous sin inside of us. Jesus came as the only being in all of creation capable of enduring the cure, and he took it upon himself in our place. 2 Corinthians 5.21, familiar verse. If you've got one of the little boxes with scripture verses in them, right? See this on bumper stickers. God made him who had no sin, to be sin for us, so that we might become 
the righteousness of God. Familiar verses. If you've ever taken a class of memorizing scripture, that's usually one of them. God made him who knew no sin. God made him who knew no cancer to take cancer in our place. To endure the wrath of God, the chemotherapy for that cancerous sin. So that you and I might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became sin and then took the only antidote that could restore you and I to right relationship with God. So neither his judgment nor his wrath are against us, but they're for us in our defense. Can you see that? That's a smudge, guys. We read judgment and we read wrath, and we think it's, that it's pointed at us. It's not pointed at us. We're the objects of his divine affection. It's focused at the sin, at the disease, at the, at the cancerous sin within us. It's to eradicate us, uh, eradicate sin, and to save us. The wrath of God is not his anger against us. The wrath of God is his passionate love for us. Right? I can only imagine if someone broke in my house when Nadine, and, when Nadine was home and the kids were little, Someone broke in my house with an intention to do bad things to my kids. They would face my wrath, right? But that wrath is my passionate love for my wife and for my children. I will do everything necessary to defend them and to protect them and to save them and to rescue them. That's the position God has. You're his sons and his daughters. We're the bride of Christ. Whatever passion... Whatever wrath that's in him, it's not focused against us. We don't face that. We look at his back as he goes before us and wars on our behalf because of his great love for us. 1 John 3, 1 says it this way. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. My friends, the gospel is good news. It's really good news. God is more good and more loving than most of us have ever been led to believe. Too many smudges on dirty lenses. Let's look at verse 34. The crowd spoke up. We have heard the law that the Messiah will reign forever. We have heard from the law that the Messiah will reign forever. Ever. So how can you say the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So from this verse we can see that the crowd understood a couple of things. They understood, number one, that the phrase Son of Man was a messianic title, and they understood that the term lifted up was commonly understood as a reference to crucifixion. They had no box for a re remain forever Messiah and crucifixion. Those were incompatible to a Hebrew mindset in Jesus' day. Nothing in their history Nothing in their tradition, in their education, prepared them for a crucified Messiah. They didn't understand. They didn't understand the ways of God. How about you? Can you relate to that? Can you relate to not understanding the ways of God? Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever prayed this prayer? Hey, God, what's up? I prayed that prayer. Yeah, his ways are not our ways. They're exponentially higher than our ways. 
modern day Christianity desperately wants to have all the answers. And in our pursuit for that level of what we would title truth, we've thrown out awe and wonder and mystery for facts and figures. For what we deem to be truth. So men, have you ever wondered why God made women the way he made them? <laughs> have you ever in your life wondered why did he make them this way? Right? <laughs> Living dangerously. <laughs> How much of your wives, your daughters, or your girlfriends have you actually figured out? Hopefully you don't have both wives and girlfriends. <laughs> Separate categories for different men. But how much of the women in your life have you actually figured out? Because just about every time I think I've got Nadine figured out or my daughter Lisa figured out, it seems like they change the rules, right? And nothing makes sense anymore. I want to, I want to have them figured out. I really do. <laughs> it just doesn't work that way. John Arnott uh, from the Church of Toronto, the airport, Christian Fellowship, was uh, on the island recently. This is one of the things he said. He said, I'm crying out to God, Lord, I don't understand what you're doing. And he says, John, you don't even understand women. What makes you think you can understand me? <laughs> There's a point to this. <laughs> The male of the species, interaction with the female of the species, it's all about awe and wonder and mystery. That's what it's all about. Nadine was never designed to be figured out. She was designed to be loved. And awe and wonder and mystery are all about passionate love. That's a picture of God in us. That's why, men, that's why he made them. Because they're a picture of God. And how we interact with them is a picture of how we interact with God in awe and wonder and mystery. How do I know that? Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds in the sky and over the livestock and over all the wild animals and over all the creatures that move along the ground. Notice he never said in there so that men could rule over the women. That's not in there. And so that they could rule over all this other stuff. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. So as men, we don't have the full image of God. We're made in his image. We have some of it. But gentlemen, the ladies in our life, they got the other piece. And trust me when I tell you, they have the greater portion of the awe and the wonder and the mystery of God. So, so do you get it? That makes sense? Understanding isn't the highest objective in a relationship. A woman doesn't long to be understood. She longs to be loved. Madly and passionately loved. And so it is with our God. It's our Greek-influenced Western worldview mindset that has exalted understanding above passion. 
And that's a lousy trade-off. Passion far transcends understanding. I'm not saying there's, there's no value to understanding. There's value. But I can guarantee you, Nadine has never wanted me to write up a list of what's right and wrong and how we deal with one another. She wants me to love her madly and passionately. Matter of fact, I remember early on in our marriage, see, I like to make lists. Anybody else like to make lists? There are some things in my life, there are a few things more satisfying than crossing something off a to-do list. Oh, matter of fact, sometimes I'll add an item to my list that I hadn't added previously, but I did, so I can add it only to check it off. So I can remember, like, we're married only a few months. <laughs> and, and I made my to-do list for the day, and this is what I thought. I'm going to help Nadine, because I love her so much, I'm going to write a to-do list for her. <laughs> oh. And if there, was, there was no malice. It was truly from the heart. And I said, honey, look what I have for you. And she looks at this list, and she's like, you know, she, uh, she didn't say the words, but her facial expression was, do you want to die? <laughs> Uh, and suddenly, the intuitive side of me is saying, this wasn't a good thing. <laughs> and so, needless to say, I've never made her another to-do list in 30-some-odd years. She doesn't want a to-do list. She wants to be loved madly and passionately. So does our God. I've been there so many times with that mixed concept of God, wanting to understand His ways rather than just to embrace him in relationship. Let me tell you a story. Years ago, Nadine and I were hosting a conference in Washington, big conference, a lot of people there. And I feel like I'm in way over my head. We have all these well-known prophetic people there. The space was legal for 400 people. There's 555 people there. It is exciting. It's just crazy stuff's going on. The first night of the event, and I've never hosted an event like this before, ever. And so I'm, as the lead, as the host of it, I'm feeling lots of pressure. And I desperately want to make sure that everything is, is right. And I had meetings with our team for months beforehand, and everybody had a job, and everything was delegated, and everything was in control. And Larry Randolph, well-known prophetic minister, gets up, he speaks, has a wonderful message, then there's ministry time afterwards. And I'm sitting there, and as I sit, I'm watching Larry pick off every one of my leaders, invites them up, prays for them. They go down on the ground, and they stay there. Every person I had delegated things to on the ground. I'm thinking, oh, my God, how are we going to lock up? What's, <laughs> what are we, how are we going to do this? And then he, then he has me come up. I'm the last one. After he wiped out every one of my leaders, he invites me up. And I hit the ground. And I'm... I'm like crazy glued to the floor. The Holy Spirit hit me so hard. And I'm sitting there, kind of like with one eye open, and it's just pandemonium in the place. There's bodies everywhere. The Spirit of God's moving with power. And, um, and I'm kind of freaking out a little bit. I'm sitting there, and I'm like, Lord, I don't understand. You know, what's going on here? And I'm trying, what's, what's the purpose of this? Why is this happening? And how are we going to figure, how are we going to do this? And I'm kind of having a, you know, a little mini panic attack in my brain. And this is what the Lord says to me as I'm laying on the floor there, immobilized. He said, Tom, when your daughter Lisa was born, he said, did you want to dissect her or did you want to hold her? I was like, just horrified at the thought. Of course, I would never want to dissect her. She's, she's my baby girl. She's the apple of my eye. He said, just hold this. He 
said, just embrace it. Oh, I don't have to understand this? Not right now you don't. I've discovered, and think, that was a powerful truth for me. It was life-changing. It was riveting. This is what I've discovered. Enjoy the experience now. In the midst of it happening, embrace whatever God's doing. There'll be plenty of time later on to get understanding. What I've discovered in my relationship with God is that the experiential happens first, and if I'm lucky, somewhere down the line, understanding comes. And I'm grateful for the understanding when it comes. And it's often quite different than what I expected it to be. But I've got to this point, I no longer want to waste those loving, tender, intimate moments of experience with God. I don't want to waste them trying to figure out if it's Him or not. I'll know later. All kinds of analogies are popping through my head, but <clears throat> let's move on to verse 35, 36. Okay, one analogy. When they be- <laughs> When Edith and I had our first kiss, it was like the most awkward, worst first kiss in the whole world, okay? We're, we're, we've been dating for about two weeks, and we're at, I'm at her sister's house, and I don't know, everyone we'd sit in, her sister and her brother and their spouses, they would all leave. They just kept leaving us alone. And, and so we were alone long enough at some point, you know, she's really cute, and kind of go in for the kiss, and there was this problem. See, she's got beautiful, full lips, and I got no lips. I got, I got thin, no lips. And so I went in, and Boom, she just felt, she just hit teeth right away. Boom. And I felt like I got, I got stuck and I was like, you know, trying to pop and, you know, and get out of this thing. So it was awkward. So what did we do? Well, we gave it a few seconds and we went back in. We did a whole lot better the second time. What didn't we do? We didn't have a conversation about kissing and the best appropriate angle and discuss who has different lips than the other and what might be the most effective and efficient way to accomplish this kissing. That's not what we did. We, we embraced the experience. Am I making sense to anybody in the room? All right. All right. All right. Verse 35 and 36. Then Jesus told them, you're going to have... You are going to have the light just a little while longer. Walk while you have light because darkness overtakes you. Before darkness overtakes you. Whoever walks in the dark does not know where he's going. This kind of sounds like that first kiss. (laughs) Believe in the light while you have the light so that you may become children of the light. When he had finished speaking, Jesus left and hid himself from them. So those who were confused by a crucified Messiah probably didn't understand when Jesus said, believe in the light. But again, if we look at the context, of verses 31 to 50, if you go down to verses 44 to 46, Jesus makes it clear that he himself and the Father are the very light that he refers to. Then Jesus cried out, whoever believes in me does not believe in me only, but in the one who sent me. The one who looks at me is seeing the one who sent me. I have come into the world as a light so that no one who believes in me should stay in darkness. When we see Jesus, we've seen the Father. When we've seen Jesus, we see the Father. Jesus and the Father are perfectly one. 
So if your image of the Father looks somehow looks different than your image of Jesus, your image of the Father needs to change. Because all too many of us think that Jesus is the nice one, the Father is the mean one, and the Holy Spirit is the weird one, right? When in truth, they're all perfectly one and the same. A couple of chapters later, Jesus has this very conversation with his disciples. John 14, verses 5 to 11. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do, not, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that'll be enough for us. And Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been among you for such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the, seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and, the, and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, do not, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father's in me. See what I mean about dirty lenses? The crowd could not see the reality of God clearly. Neither could his disciples. After spending three years together, isn't it at least a possibility that we have a few smudges on our God lenses as well? Verses 37 to 42 addresses belief and unbelief among the Jews. Verse 37 says, Even after Jesus had performed so many signs in their presence, they still would not believe in him. This was to fulfill the word of, the, of Isaiah the prophet. So here John's answering the question, If Jesus was so great, why didn't everybody believe, him? believe in him? And John reminds us that this was prophesied in two verses from Isaiah that he quotes. The first one is from Isaiah 53.1. It's, it's verse 38 in John 12. It says, Lord, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Verse 39 to 41. For this reason they could not believe because as Isaiah says elsewhere, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they can neither see with their eyes nor understand with their hearts nor turn and I would heal them. That's from Isaiah 6.10. Isaiah said this because he saw Jesus' glory and spoke about him. This is a great smudge on a lens verse. This is one of those times where we get tripped up on the nature and the character of God. Let me try and explain it. These words about blinded eyes and hardened hearts are used three times in the New Testament. In Matthew 13, 14, Jesus is uses them to explain his own teaching on the parable of the sower, here in John 12, 40, explaining why, even after all of his miraculous signs and wonders, why some people still don't believe. And St. Paul quotes them in Acts 28, 26, to explain the rejection of the gospel by the Jews in Rome. Commentator David Guzik says on verse 40, the blind eyes, hardened hearts verse, he said, there comes a place where God will strengthen us in our decision, whether for or against Jesus. Ultimately, before God, we get what we want. And those who push away will not have to endure eternity with him. 
Ellicott's commentary as this. He says, there is indeed a, judici a judicial blinding and a judicial hardening. Let, nowhere, let no man therefore presume. But these come only to eyes that will not see and to, ear, and to hearts that will not hear. Let no man therefore despair. Bond's notes on the Bible makes it, makes it clearer. This is a little bit longer. Hang in there with me and I'll explain after I read this. He had blinded their eyes. The expression in Isaiah is this. Go make the hearts of the people fat and shut their eyes. That's important. That is, go and proclaim truth to them, truth that will result in blinding their eyes. Go and proclaim the law and the will of God. And the effect will be owing to the hardness of their hearts that their eyes will be blinded and their hearts will be hardened. As God knew that this would be the result. As it was to be the effect of the message, his commanding Isaiah to go and proclaim it, it was the same in effect or in result. As if he had commanded him, as if he had commanded him, to blind their eyes and harden their hearts. It is this effect or result to which the evangelist refers in this place. He states that God did it, that it is, he did it in the manner mentioned in Isaiah. For we are limited to that in our inter interpretation of the passage. In that case, it is clear that the mode specified is not a direct agency on the part of God in blinding the mind, which we cannot reconcile with any just notion of the divine character, but in suffering the truth to produce a regular effect on sinful minds, without putting forth any positive supernatural influence to present, prevent it. The effect of truth on such minds is to irritate, to enrage, and to harden, unless contracted by the grace of God. Okay. I read a complicated, confusing verse and offered three different commentaries on it. Let me see if I can simplify it a little bit. The original Isaiah 6 text quoted here is God telling the prophet, go and make the people, make the heart of the people fat. Go and make the heart of the people fat. In other words, give them an overabundance of me. Give them more and more and more of me. Which is exactly what Jesus did and what's being referred to here in John 12 with all of his signs and wonders. How can Jesus do all the signs he did, all the miracles he did, all the wonders he did, and yet still there are some people who will believe? God did and continues to give us exceedingly and abundantly more of himself than we could ever possibly imagine. What Romans 5.12 would call super abounding grace. And though some will embrace him for it, the harsh reality is that others will reject him, hardening their hearts. God didn't make us little automatons, little robots that would respond like, like puppets on some automated program to instantly choose him and obey him. We could see that from the beginning. There's choice. We can choose. And even faced with the super overwhelming abundance of the presence and the power of God in our lives, 
we can still choose against him. This understanding fits better the context of John chapter 12, and still some would not believe. They closed their own eyes and hardened their own hearts to what was presented for them in overwhelming abundance. God came to them in the flesh. The Word made flesh dwelling among us. And still, and Jesus came as this incredibly merciful, compassionate, loving being. And there were those that hated him, enough to kill him. So, it's a text like this that reveals what I think are, are the smudges on our God lens. And, and the, the smudges are like this. God, God's unjust. God's, God's unfair. He blinds eyes and hardens hearts. And my answer to that is no. No. He has loved us lavishly and extravagantly. And just as with Adam and Eve in the beginning, the perfect setting, nothing adulterated, no error. They lived in, in absolute, pristine, holy, loving environment. And still they chose to go another path. That's what happens here with some of the other Jews who choose not to follow Jesus. It's, it's the same thing. Jesus comes with an overabundance of incredible, indescribable, miracles, signs, and wonders. And mankind, at least some, shockingly, choose not to follow him. So this is what helps me. How do I get from here to there? This is what helps me when I get stuck on a smudge. This is what helps me. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Tells me God is love. About the clearest statement as there is in all the scripture. There's no gray in that statement. It's entirely black and white. God is love. And so when I come across a text that doesn't seem to fit within the very clear statement of Scripture that God is love, then I need to look deeper into that. How does, if I don't understand, I ask myself the question, how does this text or understanding of God fit within that firmly established truth that God is love? Now, I've, I've communicated it to you this way, what I call Tom Zawacki's two undeniable truths in the universe. Number one, God is good. Number two, God loves me. Everything else begins at number three. Everything else. Unexplained circumstances, trials, error, sin begins at number three. Difficult texts of scripture, like John 12, 40, that don't easily make sense to me, comes in at number three. Because number one is God is good. And number two, God loves me. Everything else begins at number three. Okay, verses 42 to 43. Yet at the same time, many even among the leaders believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they would not openly acknowledge their faith for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue, for they loved human praise more than the praise of men. Even so, some religious leaders did believe in Jesus. They did it privately, they did it quietly, because of fear, because of politics, because of people-pleasing, they did it quietly. I tell you what, man, religious politics, powerful stuff, nasty stuff. Many times, as a pastor, I've had to choose between pleasing God 
pleasing man. I can tell you what. Every time it's been personally expensive to do it. And I've tried as best I can to, to, to please God. Even though it's been expensive, I'd do it again. Somewhere along the way, years ago, I figured out that if I try to make group A happy, I'm going to make group B unhappy. <laughs> and if I try to make group B happy, I'm going to make group A unhappy. So I've just given up trying to please either group A or group B. I said, God, what do you want me to do? And I'll do that as best as I can, as lovingly as I can, as humble as I can. And then even if both group A and B are upset with me, at least I can sleep at night because I feel like I'm doing what God has told me to do. People-pleasing is a perpetual lose-lose situation. It's a lose-lose, no-win situation. And I'm of the opinion that it's the absence of leadership. And some of these guys, they, were, they, were, they succumbed to people-pleasing. They wanted to believe in Jesus, but they had to do it quietly. Because if they did it publicly, it would cost them something, their position in the synagogue and in society. All right, let's finish up uh, chapter 12, verses 47 to 50. We've already looked at verses 44 to 46. We'll finish up with these verses. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge that person. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. There is a judge for the ones who reject me and does not accept my words. The very words I've spoken will condemn them at the last day. For I did not speak on my own, but the Father who sent me commanded me to say all that I have spoken. I know that his command leads to eternal life, so whatever I say is just what the Father has told me to say. Okay, so let's finish up with one more smudge on our God lens. Jesus will not judge. He did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The Father will judge those who've already decided to reject Jesus and his words. Those, those he will judge. The ones who, by their own choice, to reject the perfect setting of the Garden of Eden as an analogy, or in, in spite of this mountain of evidence of Jesus' signs and wonders and miracles, choose not to believe in him, their very own actions judge them. As sons and daughters of the king, we have no fear of facing the judgment of God. All that was taken care of on the cross. In other words, hardening their own hearts and blinding their own eyes by rejecting the lavish and extravagant love offered to them in Jesus, that's the judgment that they face. They've, ju they've actually judged themselves in, in practical purposes. As sons and daughters, we have no fear of judgment. Judgment is reserved for those who already rejected the amazing grace God has freely provided us. Okay, so let's, um, let's pray. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, would you move among us and by your power, would you come and clear off the smudges on our lenses? Lord, I, your word says we, we see as through a, a glass dimly. I, I ask today that we would see more clearly. And that we, this is what we'd see more clearly, you. Your heart toward us, your love for us, your true character and your nature. Lord, we, I think we've been taught bad things. I think we've been, with good intentions, have been presented with a picture of you that's distorted. Lord, would you clear up the picture for us? 
do that, Lord. So if you're here today and you have smudges on your God lens and you'd like some prayer, I ask you to come forward for prayer. If you misunderstand the Father, if you see him as angry judge instead of loving Father, come up front this morning. I'd love to pray for you. If your image of the Father is somehow different than your image of Jesus, then come up for prayer this morning. Because when you've seen the Jesus, he said you've seen the Father. If you are been tricked into believing that God is somehow unjust or unfair, then come forward for prayer this morning. We'd love to pray for you. If you think that he's not good or he's not loving, if you reject Tom Zawacki's two undeniable truths of the universe, then come forward. We'd love to pray for you this morning. If somehow in your mind you disagree with the text here in John 12 that Jesus did come to judge the world, that he came especially to judge you, boy, oh boy, I really want to pray for you this morning. So please, please come up. The worship team is going to lead us in a, in a final song. And, and after that, our service will close.